Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. No spaces. That's thomisticinstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you, Shay. That, that's really marvelous, and I'm really honored to be here. To speak from a podium like this is not typical for me, um, but it's, um, I guess I need to leave that there. Uh, but it's a great privilege to be with all of you. What makes a law good? That's an interesting and also difficult question, uh, or at least difficult for some people. I think uh, if we look at it carefully, though, maybe we can make some progress, and that's what I hope to do. In a relatively short period of time, I know that everyone here is busy and has work to get back to, so I don't want to take up uh, too much of your time with abstract theological considerations, but I think some very basic distinctions can help us make some progress on this very important question, and a question obviously very important for a place like the U.S. Congress. So what makes a law good, and how can you tell? There are lots of competing accounts, I think, if you were to just take a poll, perhaps, about what makes a law good. And perhaps around here, the first starting point might be, well, it's good for my policy perspective. I want to achieve certain things, and a law is good if it's moving the ball in that direction. Um, so it might be a policy kind of answer. You might say, well, a law is good if it advances my political interests. And certainly some people vote for laws on that basis. But um, I think these are, in a certain way, just pushing the question a little further down uh, the line because we want to really get at what is good? What makes a thing good? So I really want to make three, kind of have three parts to this brief talk. And the first is to talk about what is good. I think we have to be clear about that before we can say something further. And then secondly, what is a law? And that's a famously debated question. So I'm going to try to give you some wisdom, uh, it's like a very old perspective, a very classical philosophical perspective on what is a law, principally from the thinking of St. Thomas Aquinas. And then we can try to draw some conclusions about what makes a law good. Okay, so first of all, what does it mean to say that something is good? This is also a famously difficult, uh, or fam maybe I should say famously debated, philosophical question. And for Thomas Aquinas, and I think also for Aristotle and many others in the classical uh, philosophical tradition, good is an analogical notion. And Aquinas, interestingly, never tries to give a definition of the word good. He sort of describes it. So he gives you what can kind of work like a definition, but it's not, strictly speaking, a definition. Why? Because Aquinas thinks it's kind of a primary idea, goodness. But let me start with the first point, which is that it's 
analogical. Okay, that's a big word. It just means that it's not the same in every sort of thing. And you can illustrate that very simply. We can talk about a chocolate bar being good, or a fall day being good, or a novel being good, or dinner with a friend being good. Are these all good in the same way? Is what makes them good the same in each instance? And Aquinas' answer is no, it's not exactly the same. The goodness of a chocolate bar is one thing. The goodness of a sunny day is a different kind of thing. So is there anything in common across these uses of the word good? And his answer is yes. There is an analogy between the different ways that we use the word good. And what are we designating when we are designating something as good? And he says, well, like just be very, very simple and uncomplicated. At the most basic level, we're saying there's something desirable about it. So the good is something that we desire. It's something that we have an appetite for or something that we seek in some sense. So on that level, uh, I mean, this is very like basic idea that everyone is always desiring some good. They at least desire something that they regard as good. I mean, we might make a distinction and say, well, you know, my, my friend is desiring something that he thinks is good, but it's actually not good for him. But the point is, from his perspective, he can only desire something because he thinks it's good. And when we say that something is good, in some way we're, we're referring to some aspect of desirability. Okay, why are things desirable? Aquinas asks that next question. And he says, well, they're desirable because in some way they lead to some, something perfective or they're perfecting. So you desire food because it's lunchtime, uh, but not just because of the clock, it's because of your body. Your body is telling you that you need food and in some way, nourishment is perfective of you as a human organism. Uh, so in that sense, food is good for you when you haven't had enough to eat. Of course, food ceases to be good for you if you overeat. And then it's no longer perfective. Okay, so we can, that's just a very basic idea. That the good always has some aspect of desirableness, and it always is related to something that is perfective in some way. Um, and then we would have to add, well, different things are perfected in different ways. So what's good with respect to a thing is going to depend on the kind of thing it is. So what's good for a human being might not be good for, I don't know, a horse. Or what's good for a horse might not be good for a human being. And we can also talk about what will make a thing good, we can use some very concrete human real-world examples to try and get, get some traction on this. Suppose you're an apple farmer. I have a friend who comes from a family. They raise apples in rural Illinois. So they have an apple farm. And you say, well, what's my goal? I want to raise good apples. How do I do that? There's going to be a kind of practical wisdom about what you need to do to your trees when, you know, where they should be planted, how much sun and how much water they need, when to prune them, when to harvest the apples, and so forth. All of that is uh, like a kind of practical wisdom about how to get good apples. And we could also ask the same thing if you were, uh, suppose you're a horse trainer. 
we can make the example a little more noble. You're, you're trying to raise champion show jumping horses and you want a good champion show jumping horse. That requires not only a horse that is healthy, but also a horse that is well-trained. And we've come up with a whole bunch of practical wisdom about the right way to train a horse to make it a good show jumping horse. Those kinds of things, like we can, we can come up with ideas about what will make a good apple tree, what's likely to give you a good apple, or what is likely to give you a good show jumping horse. Then the question gets much more complicated if we say, we're trying to make a good human being, or we're trying to make a good human community. Now, human beings are more complicated than apple trees, and human communities, in a certain way, are more complicated again. These are related. So, in the end, when we're talking about law for Aquinas, it's going to be related to what law is governing. Law is governing human beings and human communities. And in order to know if a law is doing its job well, if it's a well-formed law, a law that is achieving its goal, that would be in a certain way to speak about what makes a law good. It's a law that does what a law is supposed to do. What is a law supposed to do? And what is it? How do we judge its success? Uh, that's, that's where I'm headed. Okay, so maybe now we could talk about uh, what a law is. And maybe a first question that might come up is, is a law like these other things that I've mentioned? Uh, like an apple tree, or a horse, or a human being. These are things that we find in nature. We don't, like, craft them from nothing. Artifacts, however, are things that human beings make. So a computer is a thing that a human being makes, or an automobile, or an art museum. Is law more like an automobile, or an art museum, or an apple orchard? That's actually kind of a difficult question, and there's been a debate across time about that. Let me just give you a quick uh, orientation to, I mean, it's related to the definition of law. So if you read modern legal positivists about the definition of a law, they tend to use a descriptive definition. That is, they're just describing a phenomenon. So they will say something like, a law is whatever is legitimately passed by a legislature. And, you know, in our case, approved, you know, goes through both branches and is signed by the president. Or you could say more simply, a law is a command of the sovereign. That might work even if you had just a monarchy. Now, Thomas Hobbes held a view like this. Uh, famous legal philosopher John Austin also held a view like this. Or you could say something like, a law is the set of instructions that guide in a binding way the activity of government officials. That sounds like a more bureaucratic description. Or a law is a set of conventional social rules. So we might talk about, um, you know, the kind of unwritten law of the uh, Congressional Catholic Staff Association, something like that. I think these kinds of definitions don't tell you that much. Uh, 
Botanists use definitions like this in order to identify different types of plants. And in marginal cases, at least, some of these definitions begin to sound arbitrary. So I think, in the end, these kinds of descriptive definitions don't explain what a law really is. They might just give us certain flags by which we can identify a law. And we might be interested in something deeper, and I think we are if we're asking what makes a law good, or also if we were to ask a different question like, why should laws be binding? Like, why am I bound by a law, even if I don't agree with it? For St. Thomas Aquinas, a definition should identify the essence of a thing. It should tell you what it is. And so he tries to give us a definition of law that does that. So he has a very famous definition of law, which goes like this. A law is an ordination of reason for the common good, made by him who has care of the community and promulgated. Okay, so it's an ordination of reason for the common good, made by one who has care of the community, which is promulgated. So four key elements to a definition of law, to that definition of law. And we might then ask, so I'll get into those, um, those elements in just a moment, especially two of them, I think are the most important elements. But I'd like to ask, is law then more like an artifact or is it more like a natural kind? Legal positivists, like the view I was describing just a moment ago, they will say it's purely an artifact. So law is just something that's in our hands and we can, we can say that law is going to be whatever we want to say. Like the definition of law will just make it what we want. And it, in fact, it can be reconfigured just according to the will of whoever's got enough power to do so. Deconstructionists, and we have a lot of critical, a lot of critical theory proceeds along this line, they will say that law is always just an exercise of will in order to control others. So there's not really something there to like philosophize about. It's just an exercise of power. Could be power by the patriarchy or could be power by uh, the, you know, those who hold capital if you're a strict uh, old-fashioned Marxist, or it could be power by, etc. You know, we can go on and list all the different power dynamics that they would identify. I think the answer is that law is much closer to a natural thing or a natural kind. Although it's not strictly just a natural kind, perhaps. Law emerges out of the fact that you have a community and a community that is guided by reason, a community made up of intelligent beings. So other kinds of societies, non-intelligent societies, don't make laws for themselves. Bees do not need to be governed by laws in the hive. They're operating in a very organized way, but without the power of reason. And packs of wolves do not operate according to some kind of law giving. Human beings 
operate according to some kind of law giving. And that points us to something about the nature of human beings. We are rational. We can govern ourselves with reason. And in fact, that's the normal way that we should relate to each other, given the kind of beings we are. And so that brings us back to Aquinas' definition. Law is an ordination of reason for the common good by someone entrusted with care of the community and promulgated. Okay, I'm going to kind of leave those latter two parts aside because we don't have too much time and just talk first about an ordination of reason and then for the common good. So law is an ordination of reason. And I think the first point to make is the one that I was just making, that we are rational beings and that's how we typically understand the way we should relate to each other. So speech is characteristic of human beings. And speech isn't just any kind of communication. Animals communicate with each other. They communicate like with barks or growls or roars or, you know, bird chirping and all kinds of, there's all kinds of interesting animal communication, but it's not rational communication. What makes communication rational is that it's able to communicate something that is abstracted from the concrete. So I can have an idea in my mind of justice and I can describe that idea with words. And it's kind of amazing that that idea can then come to exist in your mind too. Other animals don't behave that way. They don't operate with these kinds of abstract ideas expressed through language, and that's typical of human beings. We govern our communities in precisely this way. There's a dimension of reason in the way we try to organize ourselves, first with respect to our own lives, and then with respect to our communal lives. So Aquinas thinks that human action itself has reason as a constitutive element of it. Okay, what do I mean by that? He says that uh, law is a rule and measure of human acts, and he thinks that reason is, a, hum is a, a kind of measure of human acts. In other words, what makes our actions distinctly human, as opposed to just being animal actions, is precisely that they have reasons. So having reasons, is characteristic of human beings. We have reasons for what we do. And we can express those reasons even to other people to explain what I am doing or what I think you should do. And this is also the root of moral praise and blame. We don't blame a lion for eating an antelope. And you don't say a wolf is acting unjustly by devouring a sheep because that's just what wolves and lions do. We might be sad about it. The sheep and the antelope are certainly sad about it. But we do blame a human being for stealing your sheep and eating it for dinner, if someone were to do that. And that's because human beings know what they're doing. They're the authors of their acts in a higher way than animals are. Animals are acting according to a kind of a, an animal desire. Human beings can reflect on their desires and can choose what they should aim at and what they should do. 
This is an act of a rational being. It's a function of reason. And this is characteristic of human beings as opposed to the rest of the animal kingdom. So Aquinas thinks that is what is distinctive, and that's why human beings have laws. So laws should be ordinations of reason, according to Aquinas, not just an exercise of power, because that way they are perfective of the human person, according to the kind of being that we are, beings that act according to what our minds grasp. Okay, I uh, perhaps have said not enough about that, but I feel like time urges me on to say something now about the common good, which is part of Aquinas' definition of a law. What is the common good? This is a key idea and one that is very often under misunderstood. So time doesn't permit a long explanation of this or a long investigation, but let me give you a few quick uh, ideas to give you a sense of what Aquinas thinks the common good is. The first feature that I would highlight for you is the distinction between particular goods and a truly common good. Without this distinction, Aquinas' understanding of the common good is easy to lose from you. Okay, so in very brief terms, a particular good cannot be shared in by many at the same time. So uh, a pizza can be shared. It can be shared if we each take a different slice. But my slice has to become mine when I eat it. And your slice has to become yours when you eat it. Those individual pieces of the pizza cannot be shared in in themselves. That's because pizza is a particular good. So you can divide it up but two people can't eat the same piece. Even if it's owned by the community, it's the sort of thing that can only be used or enjoyed by an individual. Aquinas contrasts this kind of good, and very many things that we encounter in the world and call goods are this kind of thing. And in our common political parlance, often we talk about the common good as including lots of those kinds of things. Think of like, I don't know, a warehouse of medicine for a community. You might say that's part of the common good, but those are all particular things. The proper common good, according to Aquinas, is communicable to many without being diminished. It's what Aquinas would say formally shareable or communicable. So some examples. In a family, family harmony is a common good. Everyone shares in it and it doesn't belong to anyone in particular. Justice in a political community is a part of the common good. If our republic is just, every citizen shares in that justice. That justice is not just the property of one and can't just be taken by one. And notice that it can be shared without being diminished in any way. So this means that the common good is a higher kind of good, Aquinas would call it more noble and more universal than a particular good. Some other examples. Classic example, speaking about an army, what's the common good of an army? Victory. Victory is what the army is aiming at. 
Now, this victory belongs to every soldier in the army. When the, when the army is victorious, it's not just one soldier who wins. They all win. That's what's called an extrinsic common good. And it requires also an intrinsic common good, which is the right ordering of the army. So now I've just given you, like, very, very quickly, the taxonomy of Aquinas on the common good. It is higher, it's shareable, it's noble, it's not diminished when it's shared, and it can be either extrinsic, that's the goal that you're aiming at, or it can be intrinsic, which is the what's needed internally to get to it. Um, let me give uh, one more example, um, and I think it, it brings out something that's helpful to understand for the common good, especially when you begin talking about this in political terms, because people often go quickly to the, the question of, well, can the common good like trump an individual's private good, and how does that work? Let me just give you a very quick example to try and address that. Consider a basketball team. Okay, a sports team, what's the common good of the sports team? Winning, right? So victory is also the common good there. So if you have a basketball team and it's common good of victory, sometimes you can have a basketball player who plays selfishly, hogs the ball, shoots too often, will not pass to a teammate with a better shot. His personal stats of particular good may look better on paper, but if his team loses the championship because he was chasing his stats, then the team loses and he loses. That's an important point. So to pursue his particular good of scoring lots of points, for example, when this is done in a way that is not ordered to the good of the community, the common good of the team, its victory, actually makes him a bad player. Good in one sense, he has good stats, but in a higher sense, in the more important sense, he's bad. He's a bad player, not one that you want on your team. And his actions deprive him and his whole team of this nobler and higher common good. That example is trying to bring out why the common good should be loved by us even more than our particular goods. The more we recognize that we belong, say, to the team, the more we will love the team's victory, even if it means I have to pass the ball or I have to sit on the bench. And when a community develops the kind of sense of belonging that makes it easy for its members to see the good of the community like that, then you have actually a good community, a community that's functioning well. Okay, um, that's probably all I really have time to say about the common good, although there's a lot more interesting things to say about it. So where does this leave us about what makes a law good? What is the goal of a law, according to Aquinas? Intrinsically, it's an ordination of reason. It's not just an exercise of power. It has to do with being able to order things according to a plan, a plan that makes sense, a plan that is directed to a goal. What is the goal? It's the common good. 
What is the common good? It's the good of the community as a community. That is, if we were to talk about the United States, we would say that the United States is a certain community, and the common good of the United States is above all the things that pertain to the United States as a whole, that we can all share in. And the classic example that Aristotle and Aquinas would use would be justice. So that, that, that's like the highest form of the political common good. But we could talk about other aspects in it. You know, maybe for my city, I'm originally from Seattle, having a winning NFL team, you know, is a part of the common good. I think that is actually true. If you think about your, your um, undergraduate college, having a winning sports team or, or school spirit at your school is an aspect of the common good. This is something that everybody gets to share in. It doesn't belong to only one person. And you can contribute to it. And it may not be the, the main goal of your university to you know, win the NCAA championship in basketball or something, uh, but it, it's something that makes being a student at that school better, makes the school a better school in some sense. Now the primary purpose of a, of a university isn't sports, it should be knowing the truth. Um, so a school that doesn't do that is on the wrong track. But I think that helps us understand a little bit what the common good of a political community, how it can include lots of variegated dimensions. But the things that are most common are the things that Aquinas is gonna identify as are most properly the object of law. So what makes a law good? I think Aquinas would say laws are good when they make the communities they govern to be good. And when they make the people who are governed by them to be good. Now, those are very controversial claims, claims that a lot of people would get rather hot under the collar about. But if you want to know what Aquinas thinks, uh, that's the answer. And I think it is well worth thinking about because it can help us begin to think about what's the right activity of lawmaking in the 21st century. Can these questions properly belong to it? A lot of people would want to say, you're raising moral questions that have no place in civil law. And Aquinas' answer to that is, you don't understand what civil law is all about. Law is always about that. You cannot come up with an, an example of a law on Aquinas' account that doesn't do that in some way. He would say every single law, and that might be an interesting like little lunchtime challenge, can you come up with a law where you cannot identify something that it regards as good and that it's trying to promote? And for Aquinas, that is what is called acting morally. To act morally is to act in pursuit of the good or a good. So on that account, every law has a moral dimension. Making laws is a moral activity. And there's no way around the fact that we have to have some idea of what a human community is and therefore what will make it flourish and what a human person is and what will make the human person flourish because that's of the essence of lawmaking. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. 
Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.